Um, okay, so yeah, we've been talking about Jesus in context, Jesus through Middle Eastern eyes. And so we've been starting the class the way uh, Jesus probably would have started his day, every day of his life, and the way devoted Jews start their day, and the way they start uh, Bible studies. They say the Shema, um, and they say this um, with the purpose of opening their heart and their mind and their soul to being changed by the scriptures they're studying. So when we stand and we say Shema together, Shema being based on the first word, hear or listen, um, we don't want the words that we're studying this morning to just sit there and even just to be more informed by it. We want to be changed by the words uh, that we're uh, studying. So let's stand and say the Shema together. And then let's also stay standing to read the scripture uh, to follow on the next slide. So let's pray this together with passion. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Amen. All right, from Mark chapter 8, let's read this together. But Jesus said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. Also, when I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, Seven. So he said to them, How is it you do not understand? Amen. You can be seated. Okay, so we need to go. I need to lay the foundation here before we get into uh, the, the material. I think um, some of it's data, but a lot of it, I think, uh, is pretty, con- pretty convicting foundation. A couple things we'll go through here. Let's first talk about parables and very quickly what parables are not. Parables are not told to confuse the audience or hide meaning. Parables were a common teaching technique for the rabbis. Lots of rabbis uh, used parables to teach and they compared parables to basket handles. And these basket handles make it easier to carry the content, the important content that's in the basket. So you can carry a basket, obviously, without handles, but the handles make it easier to carry, and that is what parables are for. Parables, uh, rabbis use parables to help us understand Scripture and obey it. And parables are told to draw us into the story. So we should be asking, am I the lost sheep? Am I the coin? What kind of soil am I? You know, what kind of son am I? Parables are intended to draw you into the drama that is being told. Rabbis use parables not only to help you understand the scripture, but to push you to obedience, to push you to change, to do something different, to be something different than you were before. And the rabbi said there are two kinds of hearing and two kinds of seeing. 
So you see, but you don't see. You hear, but you don't hear. So two kinds of hearing. If you understand it, but don't act appropriately, then you see, but you do not see. Or you hear, but you don't hear. Okay? One example of this, uh, one of the first parables uh, we have in the scripture, um, Nathan uh, approaches David about his sin. I think we know this story pretty well. Even my eighth grade boys in huddle groups, I was impressed. They knew this story really well, too. So, of course, Nathan, uh, David's life has exploded in front of him, and he, he doesn't even realize it. And so Nathan the prophet comes to David and says, hey, let's, let's go get coffee, let's go to Starbucks, let's go to the well, whatever, and let's, let's talk for a minute. And so um, he tells this story. In this town, there's a rich man and a poor man. The rich man has lots of property and lots of flocks, and the poor man just has one lamb. And when the rich man has a guest come to him, he takes the lamb from the poor man to feed to the guest. Now, David's response, he doesn't just sit back and go, huh, yeah, that's, that's interesting. You know, it's horrible that he would do that. You know, I just don't think that's right. Um, it just, no. David is totally drawn into the story and he's livid. Flies off the handle. How could he do this? Who would ever do this? That man should be punished for his sin, that rich man. Now, here's the thing. It's a made-up story, and David's livid. We watched, my family and I watched the movie The Founder uh, a few weeks ago. Have y'all seen this movie or heard of it about McDonald's and Ray Kroc? And like at the end of the movie, you just feel sick for these guys, ultimately, who originally started the McDonald's concept, the way Ray Kroc got involved, and basically in a sense, robbed it from them and got super rich and was ruthless. So here's the two differences. Me and my dad, who are a little more head observational people, uh, most of the time, we're kind of like, man, that's just, that's horrible. My mom and my sister were like sick about it. You know, it was like, they were like emotionally upset. Okay. David is emotionally, totally into the story, heart, soul, and mind. And it's a made-up story. So Nathan's like, David, sit down. This didn't really happen. But David sees, right? He understands, but he doesn't see. He hears, but he doesn't really hear. And then, of course, Nathan says the famous line, David, David, you, you are that man. And then David now hears, and he really hears. He sees, and he really sees. And he comes unglued, he realizes his sin, he's remorseful, he repents. And, um, and so that is what parables are told to do, help you understand and push you to respond appropriately. Something, another foundation to lay here. Jews view numbers primarily as pictures or symbols, okay? Numbers are more about quality, not quantity. Okay, so let's go. Here's a few key numbers here, and this will make more sense as we get into some material in a few minutes. One would be the oneness of God. Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. There is only one God. Okay, 
Two uh, for the two tablets, the Ten Commandments on the two tablets, which are a summary of the entire covenant with God. Three, the three fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, Five, the Torah, the five books of Moses. Twelve, of course, the twelve tribes. Fifty is a little little more obscure. I don't know if you remember the story, but Moses is leading the people out of Egypt, and he's overwhelmed by the amount of requests and questions and concerns of the people. So his father-in-law Jethro says, why don't you put judges or counselors over smaller groups of people and break them out into hundreds and fifties and tens and let these counselors rule over these smaller groups. So 50 to the Jew represents accountability. Okay, we'll circle back to these so it makes more sense uh, in a minute. Okay, let's look at an example of another number. Peter asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? Should I forgive him seven times? And Jesus responds, no, but I tell you, 77 times. Okay, so seven we know is a big deal in the Bible. Seven represents for the Jew completeness or wholeness. This is obviously seen very early on in the scriptures. On the seventh day of creation, God rested. And that's what made creation complete was the act of resting, right? And Sabbath. So, so seven, is, seven is a big deal for the Jews. And so Peter is asking, is it complete and is it whole if I forgive my brother seven times? All right, let's explore this a little bit in the scripture. Adam and Eve uh, have three sons, but of course one of them is murdered. Um, the line of Seth, seven generations away, is Enoch. Enoch walks with God, and then it says he was no more. He was taken away. So Enoch walks with God, and he is defined by endless life. On the other side, down from Cain, Lamech is defined by evil, and Lamech, we'll see in a minute, is defined by ending life prematurely. Okay? So, seven generations away from Adam and Eve, two very different pictures. Um, So, we come back to the question that Peter asks, should I forgive my brother seven times? Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago. The scriptures are everything for Jews. The text, the Bible, is reality. Okay? So let's think about the text. Now, to pause, this is a great lesson without knowing the scripture that Peter's pulling from here and that Jesus will pull from. Okay? Jesus is saying, no, you just keep forgiving and forgive. And he's not saying keep tally marks, right? Necessarily. He's just saying forgive a lot and a lot and a lot. And that's good. That's a good teaching. But there's, there's scriptural backing here. Genesis chapter 4. Cain has murdered Abel, and his punishment, God says, is that you will roam the earth for the rest of your days. You will not have a home, essentially. And Cain's response is, this is too much for me to bear. This this punishment is too much. Furthermore, someone's going to kill me because of what I've done. And God says, I'll put a mark on you And if anyone harms you or kills you, I will take vengeance on them seven times. 
Okay, so then Jesus asks, no, you should forgive them 77 times. Okay, numbers or pictures. And remember, rabbis like to refer to other places in the scripture for their teaching. And there's only one other place in the text that the number 77 appears. A few verses down in Genesis uh, chapter 4, Lamech says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. So, it's not just a number that Jesus is referring to, like keep on forgiving. Jesus is saying, look at Lamech. He had this tendency to respond and overreact and take revenge way beyond the harm done to him. Something small was done to him, and he goes way beyond. And then he says, remember Lamech saying this, not God. Lamech says, revenge should be taken 77 times over on me. And so Jesus is saying, Lamech's tendency to take revenge on people you should have that same tendency, that same drive to forgive people way beyond the harm that is done to you. An abundance of forgiveness, an abundance of mercy, life-giving forgiveness. Okay, so um, again, it's a good teaching without this, but it's even deeper if you know the text that it comes from. Last asterisk here, uh, don't know what this really means, but Lamech lived to be 777 years old. So take that as you will. It's a long time. All right, so we're going to be looking at Jesus feeding the multitudes. Uh, I want to understand the map of the Galilee area a little bit and some of the context. Um, I think this will add a lot of flavor to a lot of scriptures that you read in the Gospels. So Jesus, most of his ministry happens in the Galilee and around the Sea of Galilee. The Galilee area over here west of the sea is referred to as the land of the Twelve. This comes from uh, that most Jews in the area, this was a very uh, faithful group of people They knew the text, they studied the scriptures diligently, and they tried to follow them. They tried to be faithful to God through their obedience of the scriptures. It was a very smart area where Jesus grew up. This was like the Harvard-Yale section, okay, uh, of the times. These people knew the scriptures. They weren't rich, they were poor, but they knew the text. So Jesus grew up in an area where training and learning the Bible, it it would have been very common. So the land of the Twelve is the Galilee area west of the sea. On the other side, the land of the Seven, which is the Decapolis area over here, uh, was called a far country or the land of the Seven. It was the pagan side. So why do they call it the land of the Seven? It comes from the rabbinic understanding of Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1. 
which is about when Israel is originally coming into the promised land, God says, I will clear out the seven pagan nations from in front of you. I will cast them out so that you can move in and take the land. He goes on to say, you will have to completely wipe them out and push them out because of their pagan lifestyle. You will be tempted to leave me and to go live that pagan lifestyle. So the rabbinic understanding of Jesus' time was actually not that much different. The rabbis, as a euphemism, said the seven moved to the Decapolis, that the seven pagan nations moved over here to this side of the Jordan River. And so it was referred to as the land of the seven. The rabbis had the same concern as Moses the rabbi had, which was that the faithful Jews would be tempted away to the pagan lifestyle of this side. Okay, so um, that's where you get the land of the seven and the land of the twelve. To see it in a picture format, this is, uh, I got to take this picture this summer when I was over there. I am standing in the land of the twelve looking over the Sea of Galilee uh, to the to the east side of the Sea of Galilee, um, looking at the pagan side or the far country. I, I would toss in here too something um, where I think this flavors another story is in the story of the prodigal son that Jesus tells. It says the younger son took his share of the inheritance and went into a far country and wasted his possessions in a horrible lifestyle. The picture of the prodigal son is that the father is over here and he's, you can see this is, it's not even a sea, it's, it's, a, it's a lake, and it's not even that big of a lake. So the father is looking over the sea every single day watching his son waste away his possessions and his life living this pagan lifestyle. The father is always watching us, always watching, hoping and waiting for us to repent and come home. Watching in mercy, watching his son live this horrible lifestyle, waiting on him to come back. Okay, so you can see how knowing the context flavors and adds to the pictures that we see in the Gospels. So again, to uh, look at the map again, Jesus feeds thousands of people two times. One of them happens in the land of the twelve, and then one of them happens in the land of the seven. And so let's start with looking at the land of the twelve. This covered a few times, but this is in Luke chapter 9 we'll look at. He's teaching about the kingdom of heaven. He's healing people. It's going on a long time. They're in the wilderness. And so the apostles come to Jesus and they say, um, these people are going to starve. We need to send them on back home, back to their towns. And then Jesus says, no. He says, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all these people. There were about 5,000 men. Then he said to his disciples, 
make them sit down in groups of 50. And they did so and made them sit down. Then he took the five loaves and two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and gave thanks and gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. So they all ate and were filled, and there were 12 baskets of leftovers taken up. So you can see Jesus is in the Jewish side, the land of the 12, and the author is going boom, 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 picture, picture, picture. Five loaves, Torah, two fish, the, two, the Ten Commandments on the two tablets, the disciples holding the group accountable, break them down into groups of 50, and at the end, 12 uh, baskets of leftovers were taken up. You can see that the author is trying to give you a better picture of how this feeding in the wilderness is very similar to the feeding of the wilderness in Exodus, the manna from heaven. Um, I would also toss in here, too, in the first time they get the manna from heaven, which is in Exodus 16, um, Moses tells them, pick it up, pick up all the bread when you're done. Okay, pick it up at the end of the day. Don't leave it out overnight. And they don't do it. And they wake up in the morning and worms are growing up in the bread and it stinks horribly. It says Moses was angry with them. And you can see here in Jesus, that commandment is fulfilled. Jesus and the disciples, they pick up the bread when it's done. Um, so here's the feeding in the land of the 12 with the faithful, the faithful Jews. Let's compare it now to uh, when Jesus feeds 4,000 people in Mark chapter 8. All right, we good? All right. It is hot in here. We need to... We need a fan in here, yeah. Um, it, to do list for next week, maybe. Okay, uh, so <laughs> Luke chapter 9, feeding the 5,000 in the land of the 12, and the different pictures associated with the numbers there. To compare to Mark chapter 8, Jesus is in the Decapolis region. He's uh, on the pagan side of the Jordan River. And in this instance, they start with seven loaves and a few fish. Okay, so here they give the number of fish, and they just say a few fish. Here. Why? It's because th whatever the number was, it probably didn't paint any kind of extra picture to teach from. Okay, so if the number's not given, there's no picture given, a few fish is going to, it suffices to tell the story and to paint the picture. So they start with a tiny amount. They end with 12 baskets of leftovers, or seven baskets of leftovers. So the leftover amount 
is way more than what they started with. Okay, so he feeds 4,000 people. What is the picture of each? Jesus is the bread for the Jews and the Gentiles. Jesus is the bread for the entire world. You see that? So numbers are painting pictures. Um, I, I remember in college one time, I was in, um, office, in the office of one of my teachers, um, Monty Cox, and I think I was probably complaining about like our culture and church culture and being a college kid frustrated with stuff. And Monty said, look, you're, you're right about all that. It's just that remember God works with what he has. God works with what he has. And in both of these instances, the disciples are worried about what they don't have. We only have this tiny amount. Look at what all we don't have to feed all these people. God works with what he has. And a lot of our worry comes from the, the stuff that we don't have. I don't have enough to get the job done to do this well, etc. Okay, so here's the thing. I think we all believe these miracles happened. We believe they happened. They were real. Amazing to feed thousands of people. Let's continue on with Mark chapter 8. Jesus and the disciples get in the boat. They start going to the other side. They realize they only have one loaf of bread for the 13 of them. And it appears that the disciples start to argue and bicker about Peter. I thought you were bringing more bread. Nope. John said he was. And so they start arguing and they get frustrated because they only have one loaf of bread for 13 people. And so Jesus says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Do you not remember a few months, a few couple years ago, whatever, when we fed 5,000 people in the galley? How, how many leftovers did we have? And they said, 12 baskets of leftovers. And he said, okay, and literally just a few hours ago, fed thousands of people. How many leftovers did we have? Seven baskets. And he says, you see, but you don't see. You hear, but you don't hear. You don't shema with all your heart, soul, and might. The disciples weren't changed one bit. It didn't change them at all. That Jesus fed thousands of people starting with a mustard seed amount of bread. And so here they are wondering if one loaf for 13 people isn't going to be enough. So they come to Bethsaida. And they bring a blind man to him. And they say, please heal this blind man. Jesus, it says, takes him out of the town. So this is a miracle and a healing to teach the disciples, not the masses of crowds in Bethsaida. Now, if you remember this, Jesus spits on his eyes, puts his hands on his eyes, which hopefully our eye doctors don't do that to us. How, though I think the puff in the eye is probably just as annoying <laughs> as someone spitting in the eyes. Actually, in this day, uh, it was believed that the saliva of a righteous man had healing properties. So the spinning on the eyes is not that weird of a thing for a healing rabbi to do. So spits on his eyes. Jesus puts his hands on his eyes and says, look up. What do you see? And the blind, well, formerly blind man says, I see everyone walking around looking like trees. Okay, so did Jesus mess, mess up? He kind of healed him. He kind of sees, but he doesn't really see. 
So he puts his hands on his eyes again. He says, look up. And he says, I can see everyone clearly. Miracles have teachings with them. They're not just there to amaze people. Jesus uses a blind guy to be a visual aid for his blind disciples. They see, but they don't really see. The miracles didn't change them one bit. And I hope you can see that the scriptures and the way the authors tell the story is they're trying to push us to change. Not just understand them, not just agree with them, because agreement doesn't equal obedience. We want follow through when we read the scripture. And you know the apostles are seeing this blind man and after Jesus has just told them, you, you hear, but you don't hear. You see, but you don't see. You watch what happens and you're not changed one bit. And then they see him do this thing to the blind man and they go, yes, do that to us. Help us to see. Help us to really see. I think at least one application of this is coming back to worry. Worry is a real burden. It's just an unnecessary one. Worry is a burden that we create for ourselves. And Jesus is saying, you don't have to worry. What you have is enough. I can work with that. If you're willing to turn it over to me, I can work with what you have. You don't have to worry anymore. I can fill you and I can satisfy you. And so I think what this pushes me, pushes us to do, is to look at all of these miracles and to say, how am I different because of them? Particularly, Stephen, you don't have to worry. God works with what he has. God works with what he, he, don't create your own burdens for yourself. God can work with the burdens you have. Don't create unnecessary ones. Um, I'll close with this verse and then we can, uh, we can talk about it for a minute. From Matthew 6, Jesus says, Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Um, uh, I, you know, I think right now we have things we're worried about or we're going to have the opportunity <laughs> in a few minutes and we start talking to people, you know, oh, I should probably be worried about that, you know, or this afternoon, this week, you're going to have the opportunity to worry. But don't don't withhold the bread. Don't withhold the five loaves and two fish from God. He can work with that. Um, all right, I'll, I'll pause there. We got a few minutes to discuss. I'd be interested just to hear any thoughts from this or even just how this challenges uh, your understanding of, for yourself, you know, what you want to withhold from God or, um, you know, 
how, how worry impacts your own life and et cetera. Any, any thoughts or questions about it? Reminded of Jesus' statement about uh, living in the presence. There are plenty of troubles for tomorrow. Don't worry about those. The modern mindfulness movement of kind of focusing on the moment and being in the moment is sort of a variation of that theme, it would seem. Agreed. Mm -hmm. I would also say following up in Mark chapter 8, after Jesus kind of heals the blind guy and then really heals him, the, the story following that is... Jesus says to ask the apostles, who do others say that I am? You're like, people say you're Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. You're not just a great rabbi. You are the Messiah. So an instance of the others kind of see, but the apostles really see in this instance. But it's interesting that that conversation occurs immediately after going to Bethsaida, where they they can't remember the bread, and they're worried about the bread. You, you can see that the highs and the lows. Yes, the volatility. I mean, literally, that conversation is a day later. Yeah. And it's yeah. Who's going to feed us? We're going to starve. I mean, literally, what they're saying is we're going to starve to death on this five-mile boat ride and you know and then like the next day he goes oh no you're you are the messiah the one who is going to put us on the top of the world and that brings up like the tension of we believe that jesus is the messiah and the bread of the world but will he feed us now like in this moment today he will he will he always does and so it, that's a tension. I think Jesus may be your Messiah, but do you have faith today? So give us this day our daily bread. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I always wonder what it would be like to actually live a worry-free life and like what, what that would look like. Every time I think about this verse, just you know, worry is such a part of our lives. I know it's part of my life, you know, and just wonder how, how you even do that yeah. <laughs> in this world. Yeah, you know? we're programmed to worry. It's just like built in, I feel like. And throughout Scripture, that is the number one thing he tells people. Don't worry, don't worry. Yeah. What, what, what strikes me interesting is I, I don't even know if I can even describe this, but worry Eating was a matter of daily, it's a daily battle survival, right? I mean, there was not grocery store. 
fast food or it, to, for Jesus to say, don't worry about what you will eat when it was not, eating was not something you take for granted. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's just, that's a radical bit of advice. These, these folks literally woke up every morning what are we going to eat today? Where are we going <coughs> to I think that's too far off, though. I mean, probably our grandparents that live on the farm. I think mm -hmm. it's women. I mean, from day break until my mom even. I mean, you know, it's constantly you get up and you get ready and you're fixing breakfast, da -da -da, then you're cleaning up. And I mean, it's a constant daily. But he's telling those folks no. I know. And I, but I think there, this is the constant struggle for me. Where's the everything's a balance. I mean, there is planning involved, but not worrying. So where do you mm -hmm. find that balance? I mean, aren't there the scriptures that say count the cost before you build a whatever? Mm -hmm. You know, that you can't, you've got to plan for your day, I guess, but at some point it tips the balance over into worrying, and I don't know where that balance is, but... Mm -hmm. It's maybe different yeah, for I mean, different I, ones a of us. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that maybe so, the question is, can you plan with faith? There you go. And that's it, but that's not easy. That's not easy yeah. to do and figure out day to day. But can you plan and yet say? And at some point, just say, let it go. Yeah. Because that's, I can't let it go. Yep. All right, 1046. <laughs> Let's go uh, cool off somewhere. <laughs> Thanks for being here.